nature's deadliest organisms. I was convinced I wasn't going to take my baby home from the hospital. They hijack our bodies. It was gross to think something like that could be living in me. Disable our immune systems. There are very few things that cause as much pain, discomfort, and redness. And eat us from within. My gallbladder looked like it had been shredded and eaten by something. For those infected, they are the monsters inside me. Virginia Beach, Virginia is home to Tim and Emily Peterson. We've been married for almost 12 years and we're still giggling. We're still having fun. Let's each other out pretty well. She's definitely more outgoing. I'm definitely more reserved. Emily runs a successful wedding planning business. And Tim is an endocrinologist. It's rewarding when you can solve a problem that's maybe been difficult to solve for somebody. The busy couple are raising three children, the youngest of whom is daughter Elia. Elia is such an easygoing, fun-loving, just happy-go-lucky baby. She's always smiling and cooing. Really could not have asked for a better baby. You'll find us together as a family more often than not. We enjoy being around each other. We enjoy that we have each other. But this harmonious family is about to be broken apart by an invisible intruder. It's a warm July evening. Emily is home alone with the children and has just sat down to feed three-month-old Elia. Normally she nurses like a champ. She knows exactly what to do and gets it done and then goes to sleep. But tonight, Emily is having trouble getting her baby to eat. She just didn't seem interested. She would start and then she would stop and she would look away. And I thought if she's really hungry, she'll wake up in the middle of the night. But by the next morning, Emily hasn't heard so much as a peep from her daughter. I went into Elia's room and she was smiling. She was happy. I was hopeful that maybe she was finally in a nurse. But again, she wanted nothing to do with it. I thought, we're kind of pushing it now. We're going on probably 12 hours since she had had anything to eat. I did all of the normal checks. Okay, is there a fever? Is there congestion? Is she getting a cold? The bizarre thing was none of those symptoms were happening. It was almost like she was perfectly fine, except for she didn't want to eat. Emily picks up the phone and calls Tim who's just begun a long shift at the hospital. When I answered the phone, I heard concern and confusion. She wasn't sure what was going on. She wasn't even sure that Elliot was necessarily sick. She just knew something wasn't right. He felt like because there were no other signs or symptoms that were giving us any reason to worry, we were going to write it out. For several hours, Emily keeps a close eye on Elia, and everything seems normal until she puts her daughter down for an afternoon nap. I started to hear this just low, moaning cry. It was a really bizarre sound, but it was very muted. 
So it wasn't like she was really angry or needed something right away. It was almost like an uncomfortable cry. I thought, a cold's coming. A cold's coming and she hasn't experienced one and so she's maybe a little achy. Once again, Emily tries to feed Elia, hoping it will ease her symptoms. I felt like the moan was getting worse. I wasn't sure why. Um, I kept thinking, I'm mom, I'm supposed to comfort her. Why am I, why am I frustrating her? Then, after several failed attempts, Emily finally notices a change in her daughter's condition. But unfortunately, it's not the one she hoped for. Her head wasn't turning left or right. She was floppy. Her arms would flop to the side, and she wouldn't pick them back up as fast as she's used to picking them up. And I knew something was really wrong. Emily again contacts her husband. I was in the hospital, and I got the call from Emily. It was hard to not be able to assess her myself and to not get a better understanding of what was going on. Emily's got pretty sharp intuition, and when I heard that she had concern that Elia wasn't well, then I knew it needed to be further investigated. Tim agrees that Elia should be taken to the children's hospital immediately. We walk into the ER, and I think I was so relieved that we were finally at a place where somebody could help us figure out the problem. A short while later, when Tim arrives, he finds his daughter in a perilous position. She was weak. Her cry was very weak. And uh, just looked like she wasn't doing well. My heart dropped, you know. It was a... pretty sudden turn for her from the day before till now. The medical staff suspects that Elia's muscle weakness could be a sign of a viral infection, so they run blood tests. And that came back negative. And then they tested for all sorts of bacterias and things, and they all came back negative. I mean, everything was coming back negative. How can they help her if they don't even know what they're fighting? Doctors explain to Tim and Emily that since there is no obvious diagnosis, they'll need to expand their test to include rarer illnesses. There was a lot thrown on the table. Could it be some form of cancer? Could it have been congenital um, issues uh, that normally would present themselves earlier, um, maybe coming to light now? Over the next few hours, as they wait for test results, Tim and Emily helplessly watch as their daughter's condition declines. Her cry grew weaker, her eyes grew heavier. There were times it sounded as if she couldn't quite catch her breath, and she wasn't moving very much, and she wasn't eating. At that moment, I thought, she's done. She's done. There's no way we can do another 24 hours like this. I mean, her body, her body is shutting down. It was that moment that I was convinced I wasn't going to take my baby home from the hospital. A mysterious illness has left three-month-old Elia Peterson in critical condition, and her parents, Tim and Emily, have all but lost hope. I didn't know if I was ever going to see her out of that coma again. 
But then the medical team makes a potential breakthrough. Doctors inform Tim and Emily that Elia could be suffering from a rare neurological condition. The attending threw out the words Guillain-Barre. Guillain-Barre syndrome is a disorder in which the body's immune system attacks the nervous system. It only affects about one in 100,000 people, but among children, it's a leading cause of acute paralytic illness. Early symptoms include muscle weakness, pain, and difficulty breathing, but ultimately, it can lead to paralysis, and in some cases, even death. Since Guillain-Barre syndrome affects the central nervous system, Elia's case is turned over to a pediatric neurologist, Dr. Svinder Tour. When I went to see her, the child was literally limp like a rag doll and had absolutely no head control. The arms were hanging loose, legs were dangly. But as Dr. Tour examines Elia's feet, he notices something strange. And it could prove key to figuring out what's wrong with the little girl. In Guillain-Barre syndrome, the weakness is ascending. It starts in the feet and then moves upward. But Elia can still move her feet. She had a descending type of paralysis. It starts in the head and neck area and then descends downward. Dr. Tour immediately rules out Guillain-Barre syndrome. And now, by process of elimination, he believes he knows what disease Elia is suffering from. I diagnosed Elia with infant botulism. Infant botulism is a disorder of the nervous system. It's caused by the spores of the bacteria Clostridium botulinum. Inside Elia, the spores multiply in her intestines, emitting a toxic chemical that is destroying her nerves. As it does so, it triggers a creeping paralysis that leaves her unable to eat, cry, and even breathe. When Dr. Tour first said that this is most likely infant botulism, my jaw dropped. And I said to myself, really? No way. I wanted to know what that meant. Does this mean she's going to die? Does this mean that she has this permanent, you know, disfigurement of some sort? Like, what does this mean? The neurotoxin released by Clostridium botulinum is among the world's most lethal. In fact, about one in 10 people who contract the bacteria will die as a result. And those who do survive are often left with long-term respiratory conditions and permanent muscle weakness. To save Elia's life, Dr. Tor puts her on a specialized antitoxin. For several days, Tim and Emily hold vigil at Elia's bedside but their baby girl remains unresponsive. I remember sitting in an IC room, staring at her bed, just wanting her to get better. Then, more than a week after being admitted to the hospital, Elliot does something remarkable. <gasps> Hi, Elliot. Her eyes opened and she looked at me. I remember thinking, this is good. This is good. She's coming back too, and she's um, she's gonna make it. Just watching that little spunk come back and watching her fight, uh, rear its beautiful head, we uh, started to get just even more and more excited that we were getting our baby back. 
One of the scary things about Clostridium botulinum spores is that they're commonly found in the very air we breathe. That's because they frequently attach themselves to microscopic dust particles that then get inhaled. For older children and adults with mature immune systems, the spores are harmless. But for some infants, just one spore can be fatal. Dr. Tor said her gut was not mature enough to handle a dust particle that contained the botulism spore that she somehow swallowed. She was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Today, nearly four years later, Ellie is fully recovered from her bout with botulism. If you met her, you would have no clue um, the journey she went through, the struggles that she faced. She's a fighter. She's going to be a strong woman, and I love it. Just about every night when I put her to bed, I'm so thankful that we still have her. We could have lost her, so it makes me appreciate every night with her uh, in a better way. In the U.S., infant botulism is extremely rare, with fewer than 100 cases every year. One of the biggest sources of infection is honey, since its sticky surface attracts passing dust particles. In fact, one study found that nearly 10% of all the honey in the U.S. is contaminated with Clostridium botulinum spores. For that reason, the CDC recommends that infants under 12 months of age not be fed honey. Pathogens like botulinum hide in our food. And there are other monsters lurking in the very water we drink. I felt like someone was almost ripping out my eye. In upstate New York lies the sleepy town of Kingston. It's home to Brian and Michelle Van Wagenen. Brian is very warm and caring. He has a playful side to him, which is awesome. We ended up just clicking. I decided, you know, that this is who I wanted to spend my life with. I'm gonna ask her to marry me. When Brian proposed to me, it was a great feeling and one of the happiest days of my life. Together, Brian and Michelle have a daughter, Juliana. Juliana is amazing. She brightens every room that she walks into. Becoming a dad is just an amazing experience. Along with caring for Juliana, Michelle and Brian enjoy spending time outdoors. Michelle and I, we like to hike. We like to play some sports. Playing sports is a huge part of Brian's life. I try to go see as many of Brian's games as I can. Brian might be a passionate athlete, but little does he realize the clock is about to run out. One summer Saturday, Brian and Michelle are in the car. We were going to a local softball tournament that day. Michelle was driving, and I told her, I said, I have a little blurry spot on my eye. It felt like my whole vision was perfect except for one spot. It was just out of focus. I thought maybe there was something on my eye that was making that part blurry. When Brian had told me, I didn't really think anything of it in the moment. I was rubbing my eye a little bit to just try to clear it up. When they arrive at the field, Brian joins his team to warm up for the game. When I was playing catch, I couldn't really see the ball uh, because of that blurry spot. It made it very hard to judge how far it was away. 
and it became harder and harder for me to be able to catch it. And it just, I didn't feel comfortable with a ball coming at me, so I decided not to play. I was upset. I don't like staying out of anything. I wasn't sure what was going on with Brian. I didn't think it was going to be anything serious at all. Michelle takes Brian home, and for the rest of the day, he takes it easy. That night, Brian goes to bed, hopeful his eye will clear up. When I woke up the next morning, Michelle rolled out of bed and she opened up the blinds. I was in an immense amount of pain. There's something wrong with my left eye. So she immediately closed them back up and then she came over to the bedside and she just decided to look at my left eye and she said, it's really, really, really irritated. It's very red. I thought, you know, maybe he had an infection of some sort. We were both worried. Michelle urges Brian to see a doctor. So first thing the next morning, he makes an appointment. When I arrived at the ophthalmologist, I explained to them everything that was going on. She was very concerned about how much pain that I was in. The ophthalmologist dilates Brian's pupil so she can examine his eye. She noticed that my iris was very, very swollen. She thought that the swelling was what was causing so much pain, and she went and diagnosed me with uh, iritis. Iritis is an inflammation of the iris, the colored ring that surrounds the pupil. It can be caused by many different things, including eye trauma, infections, and certain diseases. I was happy to hear that it was something that was treatable. The ophthalmologist prescribed Brian a course of steroid drops. For the next four days, he uses them, and they work to clear up his eye. We were happy that everything was going to be fine. But two days later, Brian wakes to a nasty sensation. I felt the immediate irritation and immediate pain. I noticed my vision was getting worse. I felt like it was getting more blurry. It's back. Whatever it is, it's back. For the past week, Brian Van Wagenen has been suffering from pain in his left eye. So he decides to get a second opinion from a different doctor. As soon as he looked, he said that my iris was swollen, that uh, that was the same, but he actually thought it was a virus that I had. He diagnosed me with herpes simplex virus. Herpes simplex is the same virus that causes cold sores on the lips and the mouth. In the eye, it causes an infection of the cornea. And each year, close to 50,000 new cases are diagnosed. He gave me the same drops that I've been on. He said to continue those, but he also gave me an antiviral pill. He said that it would probably take a good three months for my vision to come back. I was upset about that news. For the next few days, Michelle takes over her husband's care, administering the medicated drops and keeping a close eye on his condition. We were putting the drops in, and he would take the antiviral pills, one each day. I would look at his eye every night, but at that point there were no changes as far as I could see from the outside. Brian continues the medication, but his symptoms start to affect his daily life. It was very hard to take care of Juliana. You know, she wants to play, and I, I couldn't do that because it was, I was in a lot of pain. She definitely knew something was was up, 
and you could see that it, you know she wasn't as happy as she was when we were carefree and just playing around. It was heartbreaking to me. And as Brian's health gets worse, it starts to impact the rest of the family. It was really hard to take care of both Brian and Juliana at the same time. I did feel bad about not being able to pull my own weight. I was just completely fed up. I was trying to stay positive and I was having a really hard time. Then one morning, when Brian is taking his daily eye drops, he sees something frightening. I remember looking into the mirror and I noticed a white spot on my eye. It looked like someone took a Sharpie and just dotted my eye with, a, with, a, with white. I really was definitely nervous about what was going on. Keep doing your medicine, you'll be fine. But within 24 hours, Brian is horrified to see it spread. My eye was completely white. It looked like something was growing on the front part of my eye. I have never seen anything like that before. I've never even really heard of anything like that. So at that point, I, be, I got really scared about what was going on. So Michelle rushes Brian to the doctor. When the ophthalmologist saw that Brian's eye was completely white, he was taken back. He didn't understand why this happened so quickly. You can see that he was concerned. He's like, you have an, a really bad infection. But what's causing the infection remains a mystery. He really didn't say what it really could it be from. Without a clear diagnosis, Brian decides it's time to see a specialist and eventually ends up in the office of cornea expert, Dr. David Ritterband. When I first saw Brian, he had some type of infection. The eye was beet red. He was very light sensitive and he was kind of doubled over in pain and keeping his head down. He was having symptoms for four to six weeks before he came to my office. He had been treated with antibiotics and those hadn't worked, so we have to take a step back. Dr. Ritterband runs a thorough medical history and examines Brian's eye. Immediately, he notices something troubling. He had a, a white spot in the shape of a ring that was covering three quarters of his cornea. To investigate further, Dr. Ritterband orders a specialized test. We have some advanced tools. One is called confocal microscopy. It's an imaging technique that uses patterns of light and it can image to a greater level than you can see with the, with the human eye just looking through a microscope. Dr. Ritterband takes detailed photographs of Brian's eye. It turns out Brian isn't infected by a bacteria or virus. There's something alive feeding on his eye. That was terrifying. It almost felt like it was a nightmare. Corneal specialist, Dr. David Ritterband, has just discovered something disturbing in Brian Van Wagenen's left eye. Brian is an unwitting host to one of the most frightening parasites on Earth. I diagnosed Brian with acanthamoeba keratitis. I remember when he told me, I felt like my jaw hit the floor. Acanthamoeba keratitis is a rare infection caused by the single-celled parasite acanthamoeba. Inside Brian's eyeball, parasites are feeding off bacteria on the outer layer of his eye. But as this food source runs out, they start feasting on the eyeball itself, resulting in Brian's impaired vision and extreme pain. 
It probably causes the most severe infection in the cornea that we see. There are very few things in ophthalmology that cause as much pain, discomfort, and redness as, as this. It was gross to think something like that could, could be living in, in me. It was unreal. One of the most terrifying things about acanthamoeba is its ability to completely change its body. When it's active, the parasite moves across the eyeball, feeding and living off its environment. But when it's threatened, like during treatment, it can morph into a cyst with a tough, impenetrable exterior. Those cysts are very hard to kill, making acanthamoeba extremely difficult to treat. Dr. Ritterband breaks the news to Brian that this is extremely serious. It can be devastating. The worst case scenario when someone infected with acanthamoeba is you'll lose your eye. That was terrifying. It almost felt like it was a nightmare. But Dr. Ritterband has a plan to save Brian's eye by ridding it of the devastating parasites. They're very difficult to kill. You need to treat the acanthamoeba from two sides. You need to kill the growing part, and then you need to kill the cysts. In order to do this, Dr. Ritterband places Brian on an aggressive course of eye drops that need to be applied once every hour for the next 48 hours. We had to wake up and set alarms throughout the night. I had to put the drops in for him. It was very disruptive to life, but we knew we had to do it. Acanthamoeba is found worldwide in a variety of freshwater sources, like hot tubs and even tap water. Anyone who gets contaminated water in their eye is at risk of infection. But in the United States, around 85% of all cases of acanthamoeba keratitis occur in people who wear contact lenses. And Brian, who is a contact lens wearer, believes he got the parasite on a recent trip to the Cayman Islands. He admitted he was swimming in the pool, he was in the ocean, he was in a hot tub with his contact lenses. Acanthamoeba can be in any of those locations. I don't know for sure, and they don't know exactly where it came from. After a week on the powerful eye drops, Brian notices a welcome change. I could see that I could see a little better. It was becoming better. It was, it was healing. And today, Brian has made tremendous progress. Me and Juliana are back to piggyback rides, track the rides, jumping on trampoline, just playing whatever she wants to do. The best part is just knowing that I'm going to be able to see Juliana and Michelle every single day. I'm extremely happy to have him back and have him help me out. We definitely realized how much we relied on each other during this experience. I don't know if I would have made it through without Michelle. She held me up. She's been my rock. That's all you can ever ask for. For contact wearers, it's very important to clean lenses with disinfecting solutions, not tap water. It's also recommended to remove contact lenses before going into bodies of water, like pools, hot tubs, and even showers. While some monsters will ravage the surface of the eye, Others will tear our bodies apart from the inside out. For there being an actual living thing inside my body eating it, I was just completely terrified. Katie Harris lives in Hawthorne, Florida. Hawthorne is a very small town on a lake. 
It's very quiet, very nice. She's a single mother to three children, 11-year-old Kaylee, 6-year-old Elijah, and 5-year-old Liam. I'm a very active mom. I've coached the boys' soccer team. We love fishing on the water. We go to the museum a lot. Katie works as a nursing assistant in an intensive care unit. I love taking care of people, feeling like I contribute something to society and um, just getting to help people. She's particularly close with her mother, Jeannie, who works as an administrator at the same hospital. Katie's the light of my life. She gets to come and see me on her lunch break or my lunch break, and we get to catch up about what's going on with the children and what's going on in the family. Me and my mom are very close, and she's such a huge help with the kids. But this young mother's busy life is about to come to a shuddering halt. One August morning, Katie is getting ready for the day ahead. I woke up to go to work, and I started feeling kind of a tickle in my throat. Just kind of thought I was getting a little bit of a cold. Started coughing a little bit. My son was sick at the time, so I thought maybe I had just got a cold from him. Didn't think anything about it, so I just took some cough medicine and went to work. Katie is able to make it through the workday. But over the next several weeks, her condition gets steadily worse. I was just coughing continuously, just a deep, hoarse cough. Finally, Katie goes to see her doctor. She listened to my lungs, and she suggested that I had bronchitis, and she prescribed some antibiotics. Katie heads home and begins the course of medication. But after 10 days, she sees no improvement. The cough was getting worse as opposed to getting better. <laughs> then one afternoon, during a cookout at her mom's house, Katie's condition takes a sharp turn. I bent down to pick up Liam, and I felt a sharp pain in my upper right side. It was kind of like a stabbing pain. I didn't really know what to think. I thought maybe I must have pulled a muscle. But over the next 48 hours, Katie continues to experience the biting pain in her right side. Finally, a few days later, she goes back to see her doctor. I told her, I'm having this sharp pain. So she had me lay on the table, and she did an exam. And when she pushed on my right side, I felt a horrible gnawing pain. The pain was so severe that I just grabbed my side, and at that point, I was like, what is wrong? After several weeks of a nagging cough, Katie Harris has begun suffering sharp pains in her side. Now, following an agonizing examination, she gets a troubling diagnosis from her doctor. She thought it was a fractured rib due to coughing. She said that this was something common. I thought it was kind of bizarre that coughing could cause a fractured rib, but I just thought she's the doctor and she knows what she's talking about. The doctor informs Katie that the rib could take six weeks to heal and prescribes medication to help with the pain. But by the end of the course of drugs, Katie is still in agony. The cough was getting worse as opposed to getting better, and I was still having this pain in my ribs. I had never felt a pain like this before. Fearing that she may have a serious condition, Katie heads to a local urgent care center. He looked in my chart and saw that I had a fractured rib. 
the doctor did a physical exam on me and chest x-ray. Katie hopes the tests will finally provide some answers. But the scans show no sign of a rib fracture. Then, to Katie's amazement, the doctor makes an unexpected request. He would like for me to take a drug test. The doctor said, you've been on pain medication for long enough. If you're looking for pain medication, you're not going to get it. When the doctor didn't believe me, I was really upset, especially working in the medical field. This is pain medication that I actually needed. Katie called me up and she said, Mom, they think I'm seeking pills. I was like, you got to be kidding me. Over the next several months, Katie seeks help from one doctor after another. Every time it just seemed like they would tell me I had a pulled muscle. Over and over, they would just say, you have a pulled muscle. Katie's pain becomes so severe that she's forced to send her kids to her mom's house several days a week. I felt as if I was pawning my kids off constantly, and it really hit me hard. I really started to feel like a bad mom. At that time, my darkest fear was that I would die. I had some kind of terminal illness, and I wasn't going to be around for my kids. She had said, Mom, if something happens to me, will you take my place? She was even, oh gosh, she was even thinking about signing over custody because she could not watch her kids. But it was a rough time. Despite the crippling pain, Katie still has to support her family, so she struggles through shifts at the hospital. At work, I would just be extremely exhausted, and I had to keep sneaking off to go cough so that the patients wouldn't hear just how bad it was. Then one day, Katie is doing her rounds when months of symptoms come to a head. I had no idea what was happening to my body. It was a piercing, deep pain. It was nothing like I had ever felt before. At this point, I knew that there was no way this was a pulled muscle. Katie heads straight for the emergency room. There, doctors take blood and ask for a urine sample. But when Katie looks at the sample, she gets a shock. I noticed that my urine was the color of Coca-Cola. I had never seen anything like this. I was really startled. Discolored urine can be a sign of a serious kidney issue. So doctors order an ultrasound and a CT scan. Soon the results come back. The doctor came in and he told me that the gallbladder was inflamed and that he had seen a polyp in my gallbladder. Gallbladder polyps are tumor-like lesions that project from the gallbladder wall. Most are benign, but in some cases they can cause nausea, vomiting, and pain on the upper right side of the abdomen. Finally, I thought, now I have a diagnosis. This has been the problem the whole time. Two weeks later, Katie has surgery to remove her gallbladder. But when the surgeon visits her afterwards, he has some disturbing news. He had a very puzzled look on his face. He told me that my gallbladder looked like it had been shredded and eaten by something. So I asked him, you know, what is it? What could this be? Katie Harris has had surgery to remove her gallbladder. But afterwards, she receives some horrifying news from her doctor. 
something has been feasting on her insides. My gallbladder looked like it had been shredded and eaten by something. And I was like, what? I thought I had a problem. The surgeon tells Katie that he's sending a sample to the lab for further investigation. A few hours later, Katie is given the results. She's not suffering from polyps. Instead, there is something living inside her. I had a parasite called Cysta Isospora. I thought, hang on, wait, what did you just tell me? Cystoisospora is a single-celled parasite that usually invades the intestines. But inside Katie's body, the parasites have migrated to her gallbladder. There, they feed off the organ's tissue and reproduce, causing Katie's severe abdominal pain. The parasite's presence also likely weakened her immune system, accounting for her nagging cough. For there being an actual living thing inside my body eating it, I was just completely terrified. The doctor explains that due to the long string of misdiagnoses, the parasite has had plenty of time to ravage her organs. Cystoisospora is commonly found in the small intestine, where it can cause symptoms like diarrhea. But if the parasite finds its way to the gallbladder, the consequences can be far more severe. Untreated, the gallbladder can rupture, causing bile to leak into the bloodstream. This may lead to septicemia, an infection that can shut down organs and ultimately lead to death. But how did Katie contract cystoisospora in the first place? Dr. Ivan Guerrero is an infectious disease specialist and has done extensive research on the parasite. Somebody gets infected with, uh, with cystoisospora when you drink or eat food or water contaminated with human stools infected with this parasite. It's found worldwide, but mostly in developing countries that don't have good sanitation, like Haiti, countries in Africa, South America, also. Although Katie has never been to any of these areas, she thinks she knows how she became an unwitting host. About two years ago, I was working in the ICU, and it was right after an earthquake had hit Haiti. And the hospital had taken in a lot of patients who were affected I had taken care of a 17-year-old who came to us, and she had severe diarrhea throughout the day, and I consistently had cleaned her up. Especially a healthcare provider was exposed to somebody having a lot of diarrhea. The possibility of infection is high. This is perhaps how I could have contracted it. However, I'll never really know for sure how I got this parasite. Shortly after her surgery, Katie undergoes tests to determine if the parasite has spread to her other organs. Luckily, the tests come back negative. The doctor informed me that removing the gallbladder would cure this parasite. He did, however, prescribe me antibiotics just to make sure there was no residual. Today, she's back to her old self. And parasite-free and I'm back coaching the boys' soccer team. Um, I just finished nursing school, and everything's going really great. I am incredibly proud of my daughter, Katie. She's awesome. She's a great mom. The hardest part of this illness was being away from my kids for so long, and now I will definitely not take for granted any time spent with them. The cystoisospora parasite is found in feces, 
So the best way to prevent infection is to avoid food or water that may be contaminated. The CDC recommends washing hands with soap and warm water after using the toilet or changing diapers and before handling any food. 